Hey there, Kelly here. Guests on the show share so many great ideas, but how do you start putting them into practice? Well, that's exactly what you'll explore when you sign up for the podcast weekly newsletter. Each week, you'll get three ideas from past guests sent straight to your inbox. You'll explore materials, techniques, tools, concepts, and mindsets in bite-sized pieces so that you can think about them and fold them into your own practice. It's completely free and you get it by signing up at learntopaintpodcast.com slash newsletter. I have so much harder time painting from a stock photograph because I haven't been able to have any influence on where the shadows are and I don't have any emotional connection to it personally. Hello and welcome to the Learn to Paint podcast, the show where we work to answer the question, how do you get better at painting? I'm your host, Kelly Ann Powers. And in today's mini episode, Debbie Miller is back for her second mini episode. And this time it's for a painting deep dive. We're going to chat mainly about Miller's painting Coffee Break and also briefly mention a second painting out of the blue. In the conversation, you'll learn why accuracy is not necessarily her first goal, why she chose the colors she did, and how to get a bit more brightness into your mixes. To find the paintings and references we discuss, head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 45. While you're there, add your name to the newsletter list to get each new episode sent straight to your inbox. And if you like the show and want to help it live into the future, consider supporting it monthly through Patreon. If you'd like to learn more, head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash support and click the Patreon link. All right, here we go. Hi, Debbie. Welcome to this podcast mini episode. Thank you so much, Kelly. I'm excited to be here tonight. In today's episode, we're going to focus primarily on one painting, Coffee Break, and we're also going to reference another painting out of the blue. So check the show notes to see both of those paintings and the reference used, but we're primarily going to talk about Coffee Break. In Coffee Break, could you talk briefly about how the idea evolved for Coffee Break? And, and did it start as an idea or did it start as here are some things I have in my still life setup and I need to create a still life. Like how did that idea first evolve into a still life setup? This particular painting was done for part of a hashtag challenge that my husband and I had created called 30 Midsummer. And one of the weeks, the themes was summer sippers and it was different beverages for summertime. And one of the days was coffee. So this was the piece I did in response to the coffee challenge. So my original still life setup was very different color scheme, but I wanted it to be pink and orange because of it was a summer, midsummer challenge. So I wanted to have some really bright summery kind of colors and the cherries just felt like they were a joyful sort of summery fruit to highlight. And so that was the invitation for this to exist. So what were some of your goals from a composition standpoint, setting up the still life? I love to paint cups and mugs, teacups especially, but I like to get them from a little tiny bit of a top-down angle so that I can see enough of the teacup design, but I also get a little bit of that inside of the cup because I think there's interesting shadows in there that I like the way that it helps you create that sense of volume. So that was one of the things I was thinking about with the still life. Because I work in a square format, I'm always constrained by that. Like when I'm taking my photographs, I set my iPhone camera to square so that I'm already cropping it into a square format as I'm 
finding my composition. So the cup, I knew I wanted to be the star, but I wanted those little cherries to be there because there were an element of three pulling forward. So you've got a, a one and a three, and that's a nice balance compositionally. And the horizon line is about two thirds up. So that the rule of thirds where you know, you've got one third and two thirds, like as opposed to the horizon line being right in the middle of the painting. So those were the things I was thinking about as I was setting up the composition. For you then, how important is having a strong light source on your subject? How did you light this? And is that important? Oh yeah, it's very important to me. We have a, a still life stage set up in our house. We have these surfaces that are produced by Replica that they're for photographing mostly food and things I think are really what they're originally designed for. But we have them set up for us for our still life. So the back wall was one of their cement features. And then I have a bunch of fabric, tablecloths, napkins, you know, whatever, textiles. So that was a piece of fabric with the polka dots in the front. And then we have an aluminum clip lamp with a, a warm light source. I angle until I see where the shadows are and see, because I think the shadows are almost as important, especially with those cherries. It's everything, like where the shadows of the stems are, and it just makes the piece, I think. And so I played around with the shadows a lot, especially with the stems, so that kind of got some interesting things going on with what was happening with the stems in those shadows. So a lot of work happens in that still life setup. Still life setups take a lot of time, and you're painting. You're making painting decisions. This is not, it's not a waste of time. It's why I have so much harder time painting from a stock photograph because I haven't been able to have any influence on where the shadows are and I don't have any emotional connection to it personally. I mean, I might love the subject, but I haven't touched it and moved it and played with it and said, oh, what if I put the light here? And what if I stand here? And what if I'm at this angle? Or what if I'm at that angle? And so I'm already falling in love with this subject as I'm photographing it. Like it's telling me about itself, how it wants to be revealed. It's it's teaching me about how to paint it as I'm setting up the still life and kind of getting my shot. You said falling in love with it. And it's amazing how by building in to your process spaces where you can just like no pressure you're not painting yet where you're interacting with the subject it's like a type of creativity and problem solving can happen there that just can't happen if you just like sit down directly in front of your canvas and are like okay make it pretty make it interesting or whatever that is exactly and I think that that's a really important thing that you're observing Kelly is that there are different types of creativity, right? And so there are times when you have the energy for one, but you don't have the energy for another. So there are days where I will, I call it my photo shoot days where I let all the flowers have their little photo shoots. I say, you know, work it for the camera. Come on, Rose, show me what you got, you know? And I'll just spend the morning or afternoon doing photo shoots of 30 or 40 different arrangements of flowers and compositions and pull one out and push one in and just play around. And then I've got all these things because that's the creative energy that I'm in at that moment. There are other times when the only creative energy I have is to paint edges, you know, or to prime my boards. Like that's part of it, but it's like a different, there's a different energy of it and batching that and kind of getting that done and like just, oh, I am painting, but I'm just not having to think. And just to honor what you have available to you in that moment and to, to know that they're all part of the creative process and they're all valuable, but they're different. I imagine reference photos are a skill that you develop. How yes. long did it take you to get to the point where you felt like you could set up a decent still life? 
Well, I don't know that I have achieved that exactly 100% of the time for sure. So many times I look back and I go, oh man, why didn't you think about compositional principles? I mean, really better if that shadow wasn't going off the frame there or if it wasn't kissing the edge quite that way. Or So I don't always get it right for sure. But I think it was, gosh, I probably really two years of just doing this a lot before I really felt confident. Like now I realize if I just instinctively take a photograph, almost always the horizon line is either going to be at the one third mark or the two third mark instinctively because it's just my eye sees that now. And that's what it just naturally goes for. But it wasn't that way at first. I had to really think about all those little things. It wasn't instinct. I'm kind of laughing trying to not have my laugh be on audio because I think that there's this thing that when you are, when you start painting, you don't realize that you have to learn everything. Like you have to learn everything. Everything. It is so true. It is so true. And like, I had to learn how to arrange flowers. I mean, I I learned, I had to learn everything, but that's part of the fun. I mean, that's the great fun, but it also is why some people don't paint, I think, because you know, there are a lot of things to learn. Yeah. And I feel like if you, if you hear yourself saying like, I shouldn't have to learn this, I should just know this. That's your cue that actually you're just bumping into one of those things that you didn't think you'd have to learn, but it turns out you do. Exactly. I can't remember who I was listening to a podcast. They were talking about the genius myth, you know, that we just assume that when we see somebody else's finished work, that it came easily to them. It didn't require any effort. It didn't require any learning process. They just came out of the womb knowing how to do this and doing it well. And so we don't see all the failed attempts. We don't see all their learning time. We don't see all the things that went in behind it. So we have this myth that it was easy and quick for for someone else. So then we feel like failed somehow if it's not easy and quick for us. But I think if we can say there isn't a single artist out there who didn't start out not knowing how to do what they're doing. I mean, there isn't anyone, right? So they had a teacher, they had a mentor, they had practice at the canvas behind their camera lens or whatever. And so, yeah, the idea that it's a, a joy to be a learner and it's hard to be a learner sometimes. So this painting is a warm painting. Did you go in with an intentional color scheme? Yes, because I wanted to have this be vibrant and bright. The original cup is is a red color, but I made it orangier in an orangey red here because I knew I wanted the back wall to be orange and I wanted that tablecloth to be hot pink, just because I think those colors are really cool together. I think red, pink, and orange are just really they just jazz me. So I I knew I wanted to use those colors. So even though my reference photo is grays and reds, I ignored that and felt the freedom to pop up those summer brights. So this is, it would be called an analogous color scheme. Yes. How useful is it to go in with something that sort of falls under a color scheme? I think it's really useful. I don't actually think about it that often for myself, I tend to just kind of go with what I like. And then I often look back and go, oh, well, that's either analogous or primary or tertiary or whatever, because I just, I think I've always had a lifelong love affair with color. And so I think maybe I have picked up on that intuitively and instinctively a little bit, 
But whenever I'm stuck, I will think about a color scheme or I might like in the other painting with the blues and the greens. Again, that was another analogous painting. And I deliberately chose those because I wanted the theme for the day was blues, but I wanted to get some green in there just to have some interest. So the teals and turquoise and green, so that kind of all went together. So yeah, I think it's very helpful to have those in your back pocket. And if I'm ever stuck, like I've gotten to, I've either painted my tablecloth and I can't decide what to do with the wall color. If I don't naturally know what to do, if I don't have like an instant feeling, oh, I want it to be like this, then I'll say, well, what would be the best? Is this more of an analogous or primary sort of color thing? And then I'll pick a, a color based on that scheme. So I think it's a great tool because you can't, almost can't go wrong, right? Yeah, at some point I realized that my tiny color wheel had color schemes built in and it felt like someone just had I don't, it just felt magical to be like, oh, like that's what a tertiary is. And it just had a triangle and it right. like, touched all of the edges of the tertiary color scheme. So check your color wheels. You may have some of those on there. Absolutely. It is, it is a great tool. And you can also Google it and find one online. So then each color has sort of its strengths and weaknesses. And so what did you really enjoy about working in the reds and oranges? And then what part of those colors were tricky for you? I think it is tricky to create a darker version of pinks, that that hot pink. It tends to get purpley or grayy or browny. Like it's it's really hard for me to get the right. And I, I chose to go more purple in this shadow color it really wasn't what I wanted to do. I really wanted it to be more of a, you know, like a pinker color, but I just couldn't manage to to mix it. So, you know, sometimes you end up with, with what you can accomplish with your paints. But I think getting shadow colors in the pinks is hard. It's not as hard with red, because I think if you add brown or a lizard and crimson, a little bit of green, it's not quite as hard with the red, but I think both that hot orange and that hot pink when you're trying to pull them into the darker shadow colors, it tends to get muddier faster. So then because your reference is so different, I mean, yeah. it isn't, it isn't, but it's like, it's, there's a lot of gray in there and there's like no gray in yeah, the final exactly. one. How did you decide which colors go where? Well, I decided to do the hot pink table cloth because I have a piece of hot pink fabric, white dots on it. That's the same fabric as that gray, but I couldn't find it when I was sitting at my slips. So I used the gray because I figured that would give me the dot size I wanted. And then I would just pop in the color that I wish I had had. So again, you know, necessity being the mother of invention and all that. Now I will tell you the truth. Some of my teachers, Sarah Sedwick is one of them. She would say, if you want a pink tablecloth, get a piece of pink fabric. Don't use a gray thing and just change it because the light reflecting off of that pink will be different. The reflective shadow back on the cups and on the cherries even will be different because the color is different. And I think she's right. I just don't always do it. But it sounds like that if you are running into frustration, you might pause, go spend the 20 minutes to find the 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 pink one. Okay. Well then from a color mixing standpoint, like these are really bright colors but they're not straight from the tube colors. So how do you make a painting feel bright? I think cadmium yellow light or Hansa yellow in my oil paints or lemon yellow, like any one of those lighter ones that's more translucent, that's less opaque, 
that will pop up. So that's what I used with my cadmium orange in the background and a little tiny bit maybe of white possibly. But it, as soon as I put white in, I'll put a little bit of that lemon yellow or cadmium yellow light or Hansa yellow because it'll it brings back some of the luminosity and it, it pops it up. For the, the same thing with the hot pinks, I used a little bit of, I used quinacridone red, but I also added in some magenta. And magenta is more translucent. And so there's something about the mix of the opaque with the translucent that seems to help lift it a little bit and keep the color more vibrant. Is there also white in that? There is white in there. But again, like if it starts to get chalky, then I'll pop in a little bit more of the color that has the oomph to it. I'm still learning what white does to a color. To me, it still feels very unpredictable. Hopefully that will change someday. But it is just amazing. So what you're saying is like, if you add white, also add something else to get the kick back. To get the kick back in. Yeah. And even even in the pink, I might have tried a little tiny bit of yellow just to, it, it's not, just the tiniest bit of it seems to just take the chalkiness out of titanium white. And I don't know if other whites are the same. I, I never use zinc white, so I don't really know how that operates. But with the titanium white, those sheer yellows just seem to do something where it brings a little vibrancy back into the into the painting. So when you say sheer, do you mean like the, the, like the Hansa yellow, just slightly transparent? Yes. Okay. Yes, that's what I mean. Yeah. So use the transparent colors to add the kick back in. Yeah. Okay. Especially that light yellow. There's something, it just seems to have a little electrifying kind of energy to it. In the blue painting, how do you add that kick back in when you're working with blue? A little bit of y yellow isn't so bad. In the, but with the blue, I use thalo blue and cobalt and ultramarine blue in this painting. And whenever I need a little bit of punch, I'll put a tiny bit more thalo. The thalo is a very bad actor. He will steal the stage if you're not careful. But it brings that turquoisey thing in, which is just lovely to me. So a little bit of white with a little bit of thalo and just the tiniest scooch of that yellow. And it is, it's like heaven. That's great. Also with the thalo, like we're talking a tiny bit. I mean tiny bit, yeah. I work, you know, with micro increments and keep adding a little itty bit at a time until I get it right where I want it. Because it's hard. Once you put too much in, you practically have to scrap the pile because you can't add enough other color. Like you'll end up with a giant pile just to tone down the phthalo, So, So how much in that pink are you changing the color in the tablecloth? Is that the same pink across the entire tablecloth? or It is. And it probably shouldn't be technically if I was sticking to the reference photo, there probably is a little bit of difference in the at the back edge. But because I wanted the color to be the workhorse in this instead of value so much, so I didn't fool too much with shifting in subtle values. I mean, I wanted to get my shadows in there, but I didn't feel like I had to do a lot of other variations because this is pretty punchy as it is. And I thought that it did what I wanted it to do. Then how are you handling the whites in this? It's actually a really pale pink, but it looks white but it was intended to be a little a super pale pink. So I just, I put the white down first for the polka dots. I, I sketched them in with charcoal and I put that lighter color down first and then I cut around it with the darker colors. And where the polka dots were in shadow, I mixed up a slightly darker version and it, 
I don't know that I did it particularly successfully everywhere. It, underneath the cherries, it's much more gray. And back in the uh, coffee cups, it's much more sort of a weird blush pinky color. I liked it in the end, even though I knew it wasn't quite right. And, you know, and I think that that's one of the things that's actually somewhat important like you can get all the things actually technically right and it may not look that great you know or you can be wrong and it can still look fine so I think you you have to look at the whole painting and say is this hanging together for me instead of getting lost in each every particular detail this painting does have some like it has form and it has some sense of perspective where do you choose to use things that create perspective and then where do you decide just to make things flat it's really stylistically depends because sometimes even I like the flat. That's what I'm going for. So I'll just do that. But this one, the tablecloth was very helpful to me, the, the reference photo, because the polka dots in the back are smaller and more elongated than the ones in the front. And I didn't capture it as precisely in my drawing, but there is enough of that that it gives that sense of depth that from that perspective that the back of that table is receding in space. And also with the cup, the fact that you can see the under lip of the saucer in the very front, that tells you that that saucer is curved up a little bit there. And so that gives a sense of space and it gives a sense that the cup is further back than the front of the saucer because that little bit of the white line gives you a little bit of that curve. And if you can see on the inside left side of the cup where the shadow is, and then the outside of the cup on the right has got the shadow. That's because that's the way shadows are in cups. The brightest part of the, of the cup, if the light is coming from the left, will be the right inner edge. But the right outer edge will be in shadow. And so that's how you create that sense of volume. So I'm always thinking about that. Even if I decided to make that look like it was falling off the front, like a more Matisse sort of table front. I still would have probably wanted my cup to have that dimension to it. I just like that. <laughs> so this is a mostly warm painting, but then you do have that green. How did you handle that green so that it didn't steal the show? Well, I wanted it to steal it a little bit, but they're small. They're small little bits. So I wanted it to catch your eye, but I didn't want it to overwhelm. So, you know, in the shadow, it's a little bit darker, but those ones in the front that have the more yellow in the green, uh, I think they really do kind of catch you. But it, I think what it does is it just makes everything else more itself because there's that contrast. So your eye bounces off the green and goes, oh, you know, I noticed it, but but really it's that pink. You know? So it creates just enough of a contrast, I think, to delight the eye. Right, because that green, it's fairly neutralized. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that way it doesn't, it doesn't scream. Maybe that's what right. I'm saying. It's not screaming at you. Right, right. There's like one um, in the very center toward the top of the cup. There's that one little line of pretty bright yellowy green. And I almost went back in and toned that down a bit. But then I, when I looked at the hole, I like, I liked that. I liked it as a balance point for the highlight on the cherry. It just felt like, it felt like it was all working together. And that's what you were talking about a little bit before. Sometimes it may not be actually accurate to what you see, but it works. It works, exactly. Is that the kind of thing that comes with time, that kind of confidence of knowing? Because I think so many of us, we sort of cling to the reference as if it's a, a buoy in an ocean 
but what you're saying is being like, nope, I trust this. Yeah, I think it is something that comes with confidence and also permission. Like, I think somebody had to tell me it was okay to leave the reference photo behind because I didn't know that it was. And I was in an art workshop for a weekend and the instructor came by and he says, put your photo away. And I said, what? Are you crazy? How will I know what to paint? Because no one is ever going to see this reference. Now you're no longer obligated to the reference. You're obligated to your painting. Your painting has to work. And so now you just deal with what you've already got on your canvas. You know, you needed your reference photo until you had enough on the canvas that it's now going to tell you what it needs. And it's not the reference anymore that matters. I had to hear him tell it to me and several other people before I could kind of believe that he, that he really meant it, you know, but he really meant it. And I think it was really good counsel. You can learn more about Debbie Miller, including her workshops at her website, theymakeart.com and on Facebook and Instagram. And we'll link to everything in the show notes. Thank you so much for being with us today, Debbie. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you for joining me this week on the podcast. For show notes, head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 45. But before you go, click like and subscribe on your listening app. And if you've got a few more minutes to spare, leave a review of the show. This helps other artists find the podcast and it makes a big difference. Speaking of big, big difference, a big thank you to everyone supporting on Patreon. You make this show possible. An extra shiny thank you to High Gloss supporters, Andrew Atterbury, Debbie and Brian Miller, Rihanna DeRold, Janet Wheeler, Nancy Bryant, Catherine Ordway, and Pam Lyle. And if you'd like to learn how to support the show, head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash support and click the Patreon link to learn more. All right, happy painting.